I think the biggest thing in the world is no matter if you're looking at donor conception, there's a few things you need to consider when you're thinking about it in terms of not having the baby and bringing the baby home from the hospital or anything like that, but the life you will leave with this new member of your family. So what are their needs going to be? So a huge issue for me is that with a lot of these egg banks and even some agencies still, the idea of anonymity with donor conception. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Liz Elwood. Liz was diagnosed with cancer at age 24. That left her infertile from multiple surgeries, chemotherapy, and radiation. She knew she would survive and she knew she would find a way to become a mother, which eventually led her to founding the national charity, Fertile Future. The organization has funded fertility preservation for over 600 cancer patients and eventually led her to meet Lisa Castleman, a two-time retired gestational carrier who bonded together over their unique experiences and co-founded Fertility Match. Fertility Match is a agency to help people meet their third-party reproduction needs to be supported equally but in different ways. Ten years later, Liz is now the mother of a beautiful seven-year-old daughter and successful businesswoman, helping intended parents build their families through egg donation. Liz Elwood, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. Thanks for having me. I usually start Ms. Elwood with Liz, so don't let me deprive you of that introduction. <laughs> Ms. Elwood. Do you notice that I went time. through and crossed out Ms. Elwood all the way through the bio you wrote and put Liz? <laughs> I thought we'd get it in there just uh <laughs> to be formal. So you and I had spoken a lot about marketing because you had done some marketing. You are now more active on this agency side. So talk to us about that transition. Right. So I guess when we met initially a few years back, I was sort of in between the two organizations. So in between my work with Fertile Future, the cancer preservation charity, and of course, now Fertility Match, the agency. So for a while there, I was doing a lot of marketing consulting based in fertility. So for some fertility centers, the Canadian Fertility Association, like the nonprofit group for patients called Fertility Matters and some some work with CFAS as well. So there was a few different things I was, I sort of was getting to know the lay of the land in terms of marketing infertility. And I was doing that, you know, for one, to pay the bills, but also I was trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do next as my next business in fertility, knowing I wanted to stay in this landscape, but also not being exactly sure where I wanted to take, what I wanted to do in terms of starting a private company in fertility. So did that for a bit and then finally decided it was time to start the agency in Canada because, you know, there were so many out there safely operating despite the Assisted Human Reproduction Act and some of the confines that existed with it when it was first introduced in 2004. And yeah, it kind of, the agency idea presented itself and that was back, that was, you know, almost three years ago now. And here we are. So it's been an amazing adventure. 
Let's give a little bit of background on what those constraints are because some clinics have relationships with Canadian clinics and they're fairly familiar and others don't at all. So talk about the restrictions that you're referring to. Right. So in 2004, the Assisted Human Reproduction Act was put into place by the government. And what it did was it essentially put a ban or a prohibition on the payment of, I mean, a lot of other regulations are in there, but the payment for egg donors sperm donors or surrogates in Canada. So what that meant was where you could previously pay a surrogate or an egg donor $10,000 or $30,000 for being an egg donor or surrogate, that was no longer permitted. So what happened initially was, first of all, you know, agencies that were open either moved to the States or they just shut down and clinics just started to not work with any Canadian agencies and saying to their patients, you know what, if you need a surrogate, if you need an egg donor, go to the States, go somewhere else, because we just don't want to touch it now. It's such a small part of our business. We're just not going to go there. Gradually, people sort of started to stick their toe in the pool, right? And a little bit more and a little bit more. And it was around that time when I was trying to have my daughter, of course. So I kind of got into seeing what people were doing at that point. And really, you know, what the workaround was is we can't compensate a donor for her eggs. We can't compensate a surrogate for caring for someone else, but we can give them reimbursable expenses. So reimbursable expenses that can be related to the surrogacy or their egg donation. So that means, you know, a log is filled out, receipts are submitted to the agency or to whoever is taking care of the reimbursable expenses. And then the surrogate or the egg donor is reimbursed for those expenses that can be related to the egg donation. So it's sort of a workaround in the law where since we can't directly compensate, we can do this reimbursable expenses system. But however, initially, before that was found out, like I said, everyone just sort of this huge amount of cross-border reproductive tourism started in Canada where everyone was just going to the States for fertility treatment, especially Especially when you needed a third party, like you were just going to go down there, you're going to pay probably a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, and you were that was how you were going to get your baby. But as these other agencies started, you know, these agencies started launching in Canada, people started to come and and move over to the fact that hey, we can still do this in Canada. We just have to do it in this really special workaround way to make sure we're following the law and we're not doing anything against the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. So essentially, that's how. All of the, I would say there's about 10 to 15 agencies now in operation in Canada, and that's everyone's doing that. It's essentially a work around with the reimbursable expenses. But there are. Does it come anywhere close, probably, though? You know, so if the average compensation in the US is, say, $6,000 for an egg donor, some are five, some are 8000 yeah. But let's say the average is 6000 Does the reimbursable expenses come anywhere near that for an egg donor? Well, yeah, it can because, and regularly we reimburse expenses at that level for egg donors because there's things that, because the Assisted Human Reproduction Act never defined what the expenses could be that could be reimbursed. So we've been working in this whole gray area that has yet to be defined by Health Canada. So what that means is that all of these reimbursable expenses, like groceries, prepared foods, massage therapy, missed work, taken for classes you can't go to, child or pet care for appointment days, these are things that could be reimbursed to you as expenses incurred in 
relation to the donation. So we're easily able to get to those numbers if young women are in situations where they need those things, and many of them are. So that's sort of the workaround at this point, and it does seem to be working. And even now we see the draft regulations coming down from Health Canada in terms of what will be allowable reimbursable expenses, and we're already doing them. So we have the regulations are coming down. They're supposed to be put into power as of, I believe it's February 2020. And everyone's already doing what the regulations are saying. So I don't expect that a lot is going to change with the current landscape. So you have an idea of what they'll be. Do you speculate that maybe the reason why others didn't jump into the water more quickly or were slower to stick their toe in is because they're worried that Health Canada could come out and say, well, groceries aren't expensable or time off of work isn't reimbursable. Do you think that's part of the reason is that Health Canada could come in with tighter set of regulations that negate a lot of what you're Um, able to do now? Well, I think it's more that they didn't want to be doing anything illegal and they didn't want to be telling their patients to do anything illegal. And they couldn't get, we haven't, for the past, you know, we're coming up on 16 years now since the act was put into place. We have had no additional legislation or clarity about the act and how we're supposed to interpret it and action it in Canada with the exception of, you know, fertility lawyers looking at the act and telling us how they think it should be interpreted. So essentially it was a piece of legislation that sort of scared everyone but didn't give us any direction about how we could legally do things. And, you know, kind of put a, it was almost like, you know, the prohibition with alcohol in the States we saw, you know, decades ago, like it literally, it got prohibited in Canada. And we know it became an underground thing in a lot of cases, like people would pay, you know, I've heard of situations where people just handed their surrogates cash, right? Because there's so many things that started happening that were so shady. And that's exactly what happened with the alcohol prohibition as well, right? So it's not that it's a very different situation, but you can see how the same thing actually, you know, the same principle sort of applied when you prohibit something that that is, you know, is something that people want. So in any case, I think that, you know, doctors and clinics got very nervous, patients got very nervous. So a lot of people did go to the States. And then these clinics started to or the agency started to pop up in Canada saying, hey, wait, we know how to go around the act. So you can still use Canadian donors and surrogates. And so it started to catch on and it caught on like crazy. And, you know, that's, you know, there's one woman who started an agency and then another woman started an agency. And I think we have, you know, about 15 now. But the first one of the first agencies that started, she there's only ever been one charge under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. And it was one woman who who owns an agency and still owns it. And still, you know, she was ended up taking a plea deal, I think. But for some some there was definitely some things that were going on that weren't she wasn't doing in, in accordance with the act because of some of the charges did stick for sure. And I'm not sure what that is. I can't comment on her individual legal case, but I do know that after that arrest was made and, and everyone was trying to figure out what was going on, people got scared. People got really, really scared. And that was right after my daughter had been born. And it was really scary for me because I had used that agency. So it was like, what did we, like, we thought we were following the rules. We spoke to lawyers. And and of course, you get that call at 11 o'clock at night that your agency has been raided by the RCMP and and there's clinics that are being questioned. And, you know, it's every, it was everyone's worst fear and worst nightmare. And then nothing ended up happening. That, that woman, you know, had a, a small charge and then she went right back to doing what she was doing. And that was the only charge ever laid under the act. And now we have regulations coming out that essentially are just saying we can continue to do what 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 we've been doing. 
So yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are, you know, there are, I would say there's probably about five to 10 clinics left in Canada who aren't willing to work with Canadian agencies because they can't, they, it still makes them nervous. So what they're saying to do instead is, you know, with egg donation, especially, is, they're saying to their patients, go buy eggs from X, Y, or Z egg bank in the United States, who we have a partnership with. And bring them back here and we'll thaw, you can make embryos and then you can have a baby that way. So that's been a really big workaround solution. And I would say that, you know, egg banks in the States have made hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars working with Canadians in order to, to help build their families through egg donation. Are Canadian clinics typically going through agencies for fresh donors? Do they also have their own fresh donor list? Because in the United States, there's some clinics that are still more using more fresh donors, but some of them are, are using almost entirely frozen donors and using the egg bank. Mm-hmm. So are, are Canadian clinics, do they have their own lists? If they are using fresh donors, are they going through an agency? Yeah. So as it stands right now, there are no clinics in Canada who have their own donor bank or anything like that. There are clinics who will work with agencies and egg banks. And then there's clinics who will only work with egg banks. So there are the clinics that, you know, we still know that at the end of the day, no matter what, fresh is best when it comes to eggs. Frozen it doesn't matter with embryos, but with eggs, we, if any person, you could ask any fertility doctor out there, and if they were looking to build their family and they had the option of using eight eggs that were frozen and eight eggs that were fresh, they're always going to pick the fresh eggs to start with because you'll never, something about the cryopreservation still can cause some DNA damage. So we know that fresh is always better. So, you know, a lot of the clinics choose to just use agencies you know, there's a couple in Toronto, especially that will just really push the fresh agency donor. And then there's a few that offer both. So you can use a frozen egg program or you can use an agency. And then there's some, I would say, and some of the big ones, you know, the ones that we'd love to be able to work with that are just only, you have the option of bringing in a known donor. So like your sister or your cousin, or you can buy eggs from one of these banks in the States and ship them over. So those are, that's kind of the lay of the land right now. So are you also working with gestational carriers in your agency? So no, we actually closed our gestational surrogacy program about two weeks ago. And I actually, I was hoping we, I was hoping we would get a chance to talk about that today because I think it's really, really important that we do. What's happened in Canada is is a really, it's a bit of a unique situation right now. Because of our reimbursable expense system, let's say, you know, the average surrogate in the United States, I would assume that the average surrogate in the United States makes about fifty to $60,000 for carrying. I could be wrong. I, I'm assuming it's more though. In Canada, we typically see a surrogate getting twenty five dollars to $30,000 of reimbursable expenses that can be related to the surrogacy. So already you have a lower number and it's in Canadian dollars. <laughs> We know our Canadian dollar is not so high right now. So obviously a more attractive destination for surrogacy in terms of price point. Then you count the fact that we have universal health care. So surrogate prenatal care and their post-care is taken care of by our health care system. So they go to the 
the baby's care all the way through the pregnancy, when they go to the hospital, they deliver, all of that stuff, that's covered by the Canadian healthcare system. If you were using a surrogate and she had that additional cost in the state, that would be the responsibility of the intended parent. So right away, any surrogate, her healthcare is going to be covered in Canada for the pregnancy. So it's making it a very desirable location to find a surrogate from an international perspective, right? So why go to the States and pay maybe 200000 when you could try to do the whole thing in Canada for around 100000 So that's kind of the dynamic we're looking at right now. And so not only does that look attractive to people in the States, that also looks attractive to people in a whole other lot of countries that need surrogates that aren't allowed to use surrogates in those countries. So we're talking about aren't allowed to pay a surrogate in those countries rather. So like Australia, Spain, France, you know, we're, we hear from international couples all the time looking for surrogates. And the bottom line is there's not that many surrogates in Canada because there's so many people trying to use the surrogates right now. So we decided to stop focusing on surrogacy because it is such an over diluted market right now. And to try to really focus on egg donation and bringing that to a new standard in Canada in terms of live donors and, and, you know, at some point maybe frozen, I don't know, but right now we're just trying to make our donor program better and make it more protective of the donors. So there's the demand for, surrogates is so high and the supply is relatively low partly because yeah well i yeah i would because of the cost it's it's much it's much less expensive right so there is not like so canadian couples it is really difficult for like canadian couples to keep saying this they're very upset that they can't get a surrogate in their own country because so many people are coming over from other countries and using the surrogates that is you know, a complaint we commonly hear and, and we, we feel for them. Like I, I would not want to be someone right now needing a surrogate in Canada because I think it would be very difficult to find one. So where are Canadian intended parents going for surrogates? Are they going to the United States? I mean, they're going to the agencies. They're getting on the list. The agencies like Fertility Fertility Match, for instance, but other agencies are getting on their wait list and hoping to be matched. They're trying to find, they're doing things to market themselves on social media independently. They're, you know, some of them who can afford it are going to agencies in the States. Yes, but it's it's um, again, it's it's a frustrating situation for, for Canadians who do pay into the healthcare system, right? Yeah, and in the United States, there is also a, a lot of agencies have wait lists for their intended parents mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. GCs are really in demand here as well. And it sounds like mm-hmm. in Canada that there's an even bigger delta. Yeah, well, I think that I've heard as 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 long as two years at some of the agencies in Canada. So. Yeah, it's pretty substantial. Is there any, you mentioned changes in regular, more guidance coming down from Health Canada. Is there anything on the horizon for changes in law for third party, whether it's GCs or anything else going on in third party? No, not really. The the regulations are the big ones coming down and seeing how everyone responds to that and how judges start interpreting the the contracts and 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 that sort of thing. So we don't we don't really know how it's all going to iron out. I was just at CFAS two weeks ago. I was in a ethics and law meeting about talking about the regulations and how they're going to affect everyone. And it doesn't really sound like a whole like anything is going to change. Like if I guess there's 
maybe four auditors in all of Canada to go around and make sure people are following the act. I mean, I think it's awesome. I think they should. I, I think everyone is following the act, though. But, I mean, that could be me being naive. I don't know. I know we're following the act, so. So, in the United States, donors are partly recruited by the offer of compensation that you can earn $7,000 from Cycle. How are donors recruited in Canada? I mean, essentially the same way, just it's up to X number of dollars in reimbursable expenses, depending on the program. So, and then they, you know, so donors understand that they're not going to get, like they're not going to do their egg donation and say, here's a check for $8,000, but they understand that they're going to submit their expenses. We're going to go through them and make sure they're all in accordance with the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. And then we're going to reimburse them for those expenses. It's a bit different, though, of it's, def- it's certainly a different message. One says you can make this much money and the other says you can go through something and then we'll cover the expenses that you went through mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. through it. So, where, so yeah. where do you find many of your egg donors coming from? Well, they I, I think you have to understand that these egg donors are motivated for those reimbursable expenses, right? Like that's, that's a big motivator that they can have expenses reimbursed to them. So they're coming from the same places like online marketing, event-based marketing, going to universities and campuses and talking about female reproductive health and saying egg donation is an option if you don't have your own eggs. And if you do have eggs, you know, you could become an egg donor for someone else. So, I mean, I think it's just awareness and talking to women about it and normalizing it. I think that a lot of the young women who come into our program, I'm I'm shocked because I think this generation is, I think they really, I, I can see how their way of thinking has even evolved since I was that age. And, you know, these young 20-somethings, they really want to do something positive to make a difference for someone who's having a hard time having a family or just make a positive change in the world. And I see that a lot in our donors who are like, I was so lucky. I have kids. I'm done having kids. Why wouldn't I give some eggs to someone? And yeah, so it's a different way of doing it for sure. But the benefits are there still. And we see that a lot that even when the, I mean, the financial messages, it can be useful, but the message of doing something for the intended parents, being able to provide something for the intended parents is still paramount. Yeah. I mean, all of, I can't, all of our donors, like they are like, I see the intended parents write these beautiful cards and send these amazing gifts to our office to forward to donors. And then, and like back and forth communicate, like a donor will maybe write a note saying, you know, how she hopes everything wonderful for them and their future family. And like, these people are just on both sides of this are just so grateful to one another and the donor's happy to be able to do this great thing for someone. It's because no matter what, whether you're being compensated or reimbursed for expenses or whatever the case is, it takes an incredibly special person to be willing to give their eggs or to carry a child for someone. And whatever monetary factors are in it, whether it's reimbursable expenses or direct compensation, it's not even worth putting a number on it is just such a, tough thing to do. It's, it's priceless, right? At the yeah, end of the day. Which, so, so there must be so much coordination going on on your end because how many clinics are in Canada? 40 or 50? I, yeah, I'd see around there. Yeah, for sure. 
So let's say that let's say there's 50, and let's go with your estimate that there's 10 that won't use Canadian agencies that are only using egg banks with their partners in the states. Let's say that there's 40 that are. That's a lot to. That's a lot of coordination. Yeah, it's not that many though, because you have to remember there's some that maybe don't have an IBF center. Some might just be IUI, or some might just be you know. So like, not every fertility center is a full fledged fertility center. So I would say we probably have more like the number you're talking about is more like 20 to 25 right now. Okay. So even still, that's a lot to, I mean, yeah, it I mean, is. I mean, you could have somebody in and is everyone that you, you work with in your agency, are they local to the closest clinic? In other words, if you had someone that was a good fit in Halifax, you fly them to Vancouver. Is that a reimbursable? No. Cost? So travel is travel is in addition to reimbursable expenses. So travel is something that we reimburse to donors outside of their reimbursable expense cap. So any Explain travel. That. So reimbursable expenses are expenses that a surrogate or an egg donor incur during the course of their pregnancy or their egg donation that they need to be they need the reimbursement for right? Because they've paid out of pocket for it, or it's an expense that they have incurred during the course of the process. A travel, something like they, let's say there was a donor in Halifax who needed to donate in Vancouver, we would take care of their travel and that would get billed directly to the intended parent when they select that donor. So all of their travel would be figured out in advance and we'd be able to give that information to the parents before they select that donor so they know exactly what that travel cost would look like because these travel costs like especially in in that example journey that you just came up with that's probably the most expensive travel cost you can have for a donor to take someone from halifax and buy them and put them up in vancouver like that would be a lot of money right so we always know those travel amounts in, in advance but they're in addition to the reimbursable expenses if you had to ballpark percentage how many of those how many cycles are happening for people that leave their market, let's say more than a hundred miles? A lot, a lot, because, you know, we'll get a lot of donors who are not right in the DTA, but around the DTA. And, and let's face it, Toronto is really the Mecca in Canada of fertility centers. There's over 15, maybe even 20 in the Toronto area. And the big third party centers, the ones who have been doing it the longest, they're in Toronto, right? Like that's the, definitely where, where the pulse of fertility in Canada is. So we really do try to focus on recruiting donors in that area, right? Because we know that so many of the third-party programs are there as well. And you can take a donor from around the GTA and she could pretty much be eligible to go to any of the major IVF centers who do a lot of third-party. So, of course, we work at really focusing in that area. But, you know, typically that's part of what we do is we say, okay, Couple 19253 really likes donor at 19467 and 19284. Let's get their travel estimates so we can email this couple back and let them know what the cost would be to use either one of these donors, right? So it's all these moving pieces. And then, but we want people to know what the true cost is going to be before they pick a donor, right? That's really important. 
Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. So I could see the egg banks counter argument to your argument previously that fresh being better than frozen is that all sounds like a lot. And with the availability that one would have through a frozen bank, by the time you discount for uncertainty, you know, you're on par or, or even they have the advantage. Yeah. And I, Absolutely. There's huge advantages of frozen egg banks. One being that, you know, the donor comes to the bank and she gets to cycle right away. She doesn't have to sit on a database and wait to be selected. She, you know, and, you know, then they have the eggs, they're frozen. They take eggs. Usually they get at least 30 eggs out of a donor. Then they can divide it into lots, right? Let's say they get 32 eggs out of a donor. That's four egg lots at least, right? They divide that up and that lot is sold. So which is great for the business because they've been able to divide up what was one donation into four sales, right? With a fresh egg donor, you cycle a fresh egg donor, there's a lot more things that could go wrong or road bumps you can hit along the way. Things can take longer than you want, you know, different things like that. But at the end of the day, if you go that route, you're going to end up with, let's say, those 32 fresh eggs. Those are all yours when you use a fresh donor. So when you're looking at a situation where you want to have a family and you don't just want one child, you want two or three children, one becomes a much better option than the other, right? Because you're very likely going to be able to have your whole family with that one donation. Whereas with an egg lot, there's no way you're getting three or four children out of it. Six to eight egg lots. You're guaranteed one blastocyst or something. I I know they have different levels of guarantees and I don't know enough enough about them to really speak to them. But I do know it's a newer science versus an older science. And we do know that working with 32 fresh eggs is a lot better than working with eight frozen eggs. 
what do you feel like you're going to be able to grow this until? What are your growth plans for the next five years long term, one year short term? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that, you know, we're looking at. I think we're really excited to see the regulations come out and see how those fall into play. And just, you know, if anything does come up with that, how we have to adapt our businesses to make sure that we can still function them and, and fulfill a purpose in Canada to help grow third party families while doing it legally. So, I mean, our first big road bump or hurdle right now is to February 2020 and when the regulations are put into place. Other things that I think are really important right now for to be involved in for Fertility Match is we need to figure out something for a donor registry in Canada. So that is a huge issue for us. We hear so often, you know, it's like every day in the media, we hear about some doctor that has used his sperm and, you know, someone and a bunch of babies have been born with it or a donor who donates and, you know, it ends up sperm ends up getting used to create 50 children or something like that. We have huge problems. We have no international registry. We have very few, few national registries. I think there's only one really good one in the States called donor sibling registry. But again, that's more based for the siblings. We have no way of tracking donors or, you know, we don't know that a donor hasn't gone around to every clinic and donated six times at this point. Like it's, it's one of those things where we do need to put some sort of registry in place so that it's there for children one day. And we don't have anything like that right now. And that's a real concern for us at Fertility Match. So that's more of a sort of side project thing that we're going to make absolutely no money on, but we just want to address because we think it's really important. Yeah. And I think just continuing to grow our egg donation program. We now have different tiers of donors. So we have a proven donor and a higher consulting rate for that. And then we have a pre-screen donor and sort of a medium level consulting fee for that. And then we have new donors where they haven't had their pre-screening done and an even lower consulting fee for that. So depending on the level of risk you, you sort of are taking on with your donor, your price is going to fall more in accordance with that. So we did do that. And that was a big deal. How often do you go back to your roots of why you got into this field in the first place? I mean, it's why you got into the field, but now you've just been in it for so many years and you've been in different capacities. It's like, are you going more off of a base of a knowledge that you have having been in it professionally? Or do you still go back to the reasons that you came into the field at your your story with onco fertility is is that like how often do you go back to it? I mean, I think I go back to it a lot. I tell I share my story a lot with clients because I think it's important, first of all, that they know that I have been through this. So when I I mean, first there was my cancer and I initially when I before I went through my cancer treatment, I don't know if I've ever even told you this, but I went on this big mission to start to to freeze my eggs. And I was like, Okay, I'm gonna freeze my eggs and I'm gonna figure this out later and I'm just gonna get them in the freezer and then I'm going to blast for my cancer treatment. I'm going to find a surrogate. They're going to carry my baby. I'm still going to have a biological child. It's all good. So I, I froze them. And at the time, this is 2007. So egg freezing was very new. It was still considered experimental. It's not considered, you know, standard like it is now. So I froze them, did my cancer treatment. In 2009, my a relative actually offered to be my surrogate. So we went and we transferred. And both times when they thawed my eggs, they thawed them and they fertilized them with my ex-husband's sperm. And each time they just, they were so, they were horrible embryos. Like the embryos just did not grow well at all. 
And so each time they did a transfer into my relative who, who had so graciously offered to be our surrogate, it didn't work. So, and then I was left completely infertile with no more eggs. So that's when I started looking for an egg donor. And unfortunately, at that point, my relative said, you know what, I was really okay with this at the idea of doing this and carrying a baby that was biologically yours. But now carrying a baby that's from some donor that I don't know, I don't feel comfortable with. So I was left with no eggs and no surrogate, like pretty much back at like first square, right? Like nothing. I'm like, what am I going to do now? So I started looking at egg donor banks and I started looking or not banks rather. They were just all live agencies at that point. And I started, you know, trying to find a surrogate. And, you know, I actually, back then what I did, and there was so, we didn't have this drain from other countries taking up a surrogate then because not taking up our surrogate, but sounds so like they shouldn't be. I mean, they're welcome to, it's just an issue that we're having, but you know, I actually put an ad on Kijiji and a surrogate answered it and many surrogates answered it actually. And then I found an amazing surrogate and she ended up carrying my daughter for us, but finding a surrogate was actually incredibly easy. So kind of the opposite of now it was finding an egg donor that was more difficult for me. So I started working with, with agencies and I picked my first donor, waited for her for this agency let you get in line. So it was like the first person could wait and then the second person could wait and a third person could be in line. So one person uses her for a donation, then you wait three months and then the next person uses her. And so we were waiting for like a year for this donor. And when it finally came our turn to use her, she got pregnant and she kept it. So that was devastating because I was like, oh my God, I wanted this donor. It was like you were waiting for a year and then you find out she gets pregnant. So it was was really hard to take. Then I picked another donor and she went for her hormone testing and she didn't screen in to be an egg donor. And then I picked another egg donor and she ended up testing positive for HIV. And then I picked another egg donor and she disappeared. And then I picked another egg donor and she was honestly my favorite of all the egg donors that I picked. And I'm not just saying that because she gave me my daughter. I'm saying that because she actually, she wrote this amazing kind message in her profile and it said, I'm so happy I can do this for you. Be good to each other and love each other. And that's all I ask in return for this. And it just was like this beautiful message. And I just thought, oh my God, I am so lucky that this woman is willing to donate her DNA and that I get to have my daughter with the help of this woman. And sure enough, two months later, she cycled. First transfer, we were pregnant. So, but it was a lot of ups and downs because I didn't actually it was so hard to find the egg donor for me. And that's part of the reason why when we started Fertility Match, we really wanted our program to be very different in the sense that we put an emphasis on pre-screening and, you know, making sure these donors are viable options. If you're going to pay for a donor and, you know, you know for sure that, you know, if you're selecting a a proven pre-screened donor, you know that that donor is very likely going to get to a donation. Whereas if you're selecting a donor who isn't proven, you know that that's a little bit more risky and therefore the cost is a bit lower on that. So it was just one of those situations where, you know, we kept having so many things go wrong. And that's why when we started Fertility Match, I wanted to make sure people really understood the, the tier of risk 
they're in when they're choosing a donor. And so that they really don't want to go through that trauma and go through the, that difficult, those difficult journeys, or maybe they've been through already enough on their own, then they should be picking a proven previous donor because that those are the most likely candidates to get to get to the donation and retrieval quickly. I'm realizing now how stupid my question was that given your experience as it was, that it would be it just it, it is irrevocable from how you would run your your business now. I mean, there would be just no way of forgetting all of that as you're building processes and growing the agency. Yeah, it's very much so like, and and Lisa, who is the most amazing business partner and is like a very, like, because I'm an entrepreneur. So I have a lot of ideas and not all of them are good. And some of them, I say them and she's like, yeah, no, we can't do that. And we'll have like really really hilarious conversations. But, you know, she's an incredibly ethical woman and she's an incredibly hardworking woman. And, you know, she was very much, she was working with intended parents who were also going through these these situations with an egg donor, with the same agencies I was, where I was having trouble to actually see one get through to the donation. And so that's why she's been such a, she, we both really have a high standard for what we, we want to see in our egg donors. And and how we want this to work for the intended parents, but also for the egg donors. And I think that it's a very important part of what we do. And you know, we are not the the cheapest agency out there. You are if you're looking to compare based on price only, Fertility Match is probably not going to be the the agency you're going to pick. But if you want, you know, donors that are very committed to the process are have gone through the screening steps, have gone through an interview to make sure that we would both you know, Lisa or I interview them one-on-one. It's a one-hour video interview, kind of, you know, similar to what we're doing now. And we we have a conversation to make sure they really understand what they're volunteering to do. And, you know, we say to ourselves, if I needed an egg donor, would I want this woman to be my egg donor? And that's our big, you know, are we letting her into the program or not? And so that is very much so what we're looking for. So we're not necessarily looking to attract as many candidates as possible. We're looking to attract as many excellent candidates as possible. And to give an idea to the American audience of what you both are working on, the size of what it's like in Canada, if you, how many matches is the largest agency in Canada doing, you suppose? How many fresh cycles a year are they facilitating? Oh, it's so hard to say because people put numbers out there, but I don't know if they're true. And me and my business partner, me and Lisa were just talking about that last week because I was saying, well, this agency once said in an article, like an interview that they were doing 30 donor cycles a month at different fertility centers. And the numbers just don't make sense in terms of that kind of, I mean, maybe they are, but the numbers don't that they give it in a few different places don't really add up. So I honestly, I have no idea. I know that with us, we, we, we're not high volume where, you know, we get a good number of donor cycles in every month, but we're not aiming to be, to pump, you know, like to try to get a hundred donors a month or something crazy like that. We're looking to literally be, you know, a, a tiny, we're looking to be a tiny or high quality agency. So, you know, you want a donor who has post-secondary education and leads a healthy lifestyle and has, you know, you know, we spend the time bringing her through the program and we feel like she's a great candidate to be an egg donor. You're going to, you know, you're going to have to pay a bit more for a program like that. And we're not going to, 
queries other agencies are going to have, they have more candidates, but are they the same demographic or commitment level? I don't know. Not from my experience with them. A freeze and share with with the compensation regulations as they're written? What do you mean a freeze and share? So like a donor could freeze her eggs and give part of them away? Yeah. Yeah, I think you probably could. And it's definitely something we've thought about doing at some point. But right now we're just sort of, we just closed our surrogacy program. We wanted to just focus on getting everything about our egg donor program where we want it to be for our clients. And then we're going to look at the different potential projects that we're going to expand to. There's so much that we've done. You've you've definitely educated the audience about what's going on with third-party reproduction in Canada. You've given us a really good insight on what it was like for you. How would you, whether about your journey or the landscape of third-party reproductive health in Canada, how would you want to conclude with our audience? I don't know. That's a really good question. I would just say that, you know, I think the biggest thing in the world is no matter if you're looking at donor conception, there's a few things you need to consider when you're thinking about it in terms of not having the baby and bringing the baby home from the hospital or anything like that, but the life you will leave with this new member of your family. So what are their needs going to be? So a huge issue for me is that with a lot of these egg banks, and even some agencies still, the idea of anonymity with donor conception. So anonymity is gone with DNA testing and everything else. It's something that went out the window a few years ago. So we can't say anonymous donation is something that's happening anymore. All of the donors in our program are open ID. So they're committed to meeting a child after age 18 if the child wishes to do that. But when you get into anonymous donation, which is what most of the frozen egg banks in in the state still are offering, is that child doesn't have any way to find out where they're, who the donor is, except for tracking them down through DNA ancestry or something like that one day. And so is that really the best for the child? Probably not, right? It's probably having donors that are willing to meet them one day so they can have a better understanding of the biological makeup and how they became who they are in this world. So, you know, I think the problem is with the egg banks right now is that they have all this anonymous inventory. So they haven't moved towards the trend that we're now seeing so strongly now of intended parents wanting these open ID egg donors. So I would say the biggest message I would want to give to people who work in third party or who are considering building their family through third party or donor conception more specifically is what is that child going to need one day? Because that child's going to ask you why they can't meet their donor or could very well ask you why they can't meet that, that donor. And that could be something that that could be caught, become an issue with the child and the parent one day. The fact that that door was closed from, for them from the beginning. Liz, Ms. Elwood, thank you so much for coming <laughs> on Inside Reproductive Health. Griffin, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was lovely to catch up with you. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.